The answer is I don't know, but I am leaning towards yes. It is an object-oriented programming language. And it's because of multiple features that it has. And to explain why I think it's an object-oriented language, I should probably explain why I think it's definitely more object-oriented, for instance, than other languages that are considered <laughs> object-oriented. And I'm looking at you, Java. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Square is the platform that sellers trust. There is a massive opportunity for developers to support Square sellers by building apps for today's business needs. And I'm here with Shannon Skipper, head of developer relations at Square. Shannon, can you share some details about the opportunity for developers on the Square platform? Yeah, absolutely. So we have millions of sellers who have unique needs and Square has apps like our point of sale app, like our restaurants app, but there are so many different sellers, tuxedo shops, florists, who need specific solutions for their domain. And so we have a Node SDK written in TypeScript that allows you to access all of the backend APIs and SDKs that we use to power the billions of transactions that we do annually. And so there's this ma massive market of sellers who need help from developers. They either need a bespoke solution built for themselves on their own node stack, where they are working with Square Dashboard, working with Square Hardware, or with the e-com, you know, what you see is what you get builder. And they need one more thing. They need an additional build. And then finally, we have the app marketplace where you can make a node app and then distribute it so it can get in front of millions of sellers and be an option for them to adopt. Very cool. All right. If you want to learn more, head to developer.squareup.com to dive into the docs, APIs, SDKs, and to create your Square Developer account. Start developing on the platform Sellers Trust. Again, that's developer.squareup.com. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from all around the Go community. GopherCon Europe is right around the corner, and you know we'll be there doing that Go Time thing. It's just two weeks away, and tickets are still on sale. Get yours now, and we'll see you in person or online. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly. Everything we ship here at ChangeLog is fast because Fastly serves it up super fast everywhere on Earth. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, here we go. Good evening, afternoon, morning, or night, everyone who's joining us live or listening to this later. This episode, Ian and me are being joined by Rona to talk about object-oriented programming. And we'll start by introducing Rona, I guess. Rona, you are an engineering manager at Delivery Hero, a Google developer expert for Go, a woman who go organizer in Berlin, Go Times Unpopular Opinion Hall of Fame-mer. And after 20 years in tech, you know that the sum of the opportunities that were given to you, this is why you're basically giving opportunity to others. So this is an interesting thing about your bio. We'll definitely ask you more about this. Now we're here to talk about this uh, workshop that you've been in. Uh, or workshops that you've been crafting since 2017 that you've been giving to your meetup at Women Who Go Berlin, the most recent one that you happen to give at GopherCon Europe later this month on the topic of actually object-oriented design in Go. So as a preparation for this episode, we were figuring out how each of us 
pronounces the short term for object-oriented programming. Rona, how do you say that? The three letters acronym. You mean OOP? OOP. Well, I guess it's two versus one, Ian. You pronounce this the same. Yeah, OOP, yeah. I have to say, for the past like a month or so, I've been writing OO like a lot. And it looks like, uh oh, like <laughs> the emoji. <laughs> and it feels very symbolic <laughs> to the state of object oriented. I somehow always thought it's oop. You thought it was oop? I guess it's because last time I, I used this term was in university. And it's been a while since. And you used to say oop? Yeah, we used to say oop. Ian, what do you say? Uh, I definitely say OOP. I don't think I've ever heard someone call it oop before, actually, <laughs> until 10 minutes ago. This is definitely a, a debate worth having. Yeah, that, that can be a poll. Maybe this can even be my unpopular opinion in there. I thought I have none. <laughs> so we can say this episode is sort of a one big unpopular opinion coming with a claim, Rona, that uh, Go can be an object-oriented programming language. Well, I mean, I definitely don't think it's not. <laughs> so what happened was that I wanted to share with my team how to do object-oriented programming with Go. And then I kind of realized by looking at actual interview questions, answers, how people like feedback, how things are happening in my organization, what people think Go is and what people think Go isn't. And they definitely think that Go is not <laughs> an object-oriented programming language. So I decided, okay, I'm going to give a workshop about this. Sort of like try to sort the mess. Like if you want to do it, like how you should do it. And this has always been like how I do things. I try when I teach Go, I try to teach people, like if they want to do something, I try to teach them how to do it, not whether they're right or wrong to think or do things in a certain way. So it's more about how to use the tools that you have with the language properly. And especially now with generics going into the language, solving a kind of like a last kind of edge case that we didn't have. So yeah. I posted I was going to do that internally in the organization. And immediately, a lot of people that I've never met <laughs> reached out to, uh, to give me honest feedback <laughs> about the workshop that I have never given yet. <laughs> and then, then I kind of knew that, okay, like I have a topic that is definitely worth exploring. So yeah, I guess it is my unpopular opinion. So tell us about some of that. Feedback or opinions. <laughs> so it's quite amazing. So everybody has an opinion. Some people were with me and wanted to share that they are, you know, that they agree that Go can be object oriented, which was really nice. What was really nice about it was that everybody can find a resource to support their claim, which I found amazing. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. Like I can't even begin. Now I'm not an academic, obviously, and. What I do, I do, I do by trial and error. But I did read a lot about it for the past few months since uh, we kind of decided that I was going to do this. And the answer is I don't know, but I am leaning towards yes. It is an object-oriented programming language. And it's because of multiple features that it has. And to explain why I think it's object-oriented languages, object-oriented language, I, I should probably explain why I think it's Definitely more object-oriented, for instance, than other languages that are considered <laughs> object-oriented. And I'm looking at you, Java. And here is my case. Listen up. <laughs> Java, yes, sure, it has inheritance, but you can only inherit once. 
So that means that if uh, class A, you want to express the idea that class A or an object of type A is also an object of type B or a class B, you can only do that once. And if you have a case C, that A is also C, you cannot express that in Java. Now I came from C++, so I kind of, you know, had this multiple inheritance. I used to be very expressive with inheritance. And when I look at Java, when I look at Ruby, Pythonistas, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not familiar enough with your language to know, to make a case. But when I look at Java, when I look at Ruby, I see that you can't really express A is C if you already express that A is B, unless you use interfaces or generics. Now, interfaces are, like, the Go has this dramatic effect that interfaces are implicit in Java. And a class has to be aware to be able to instantiate A as type interface I, A has to be aware of I at the time of writing. So that means that to plug A as I, you have to do something. It could be generics. It could be some sort of a proxy class that will implement and uh, derive from. So there are some ways. And in Ruby, we also see how modules are kind of replacing generics and what people used to do in other languages to sort of be able to be very expressive that something is also something else. So the answer is that I think that Go is object-oriented. I'm leaning towards yes. I do see why people don't think so. But yeah, that's where I am as a person <laughs> who, who works with Go. Can we go through some of the reasons people said it wasn't like because it lacks inheritance? Like what features are missing that people are like, it's not object oriented? I think it's about the styling. So yes, most people talk about the lack of hierarchy, the uh, composition over, what's the word I'm looking for? Inheritance? I guess. I mean, I think there is a like general term for inheritance, but yeah. Okay. I think it's about... I think people do a lot of procedural coding with Go. You don't have constructors, for instance, right? And, and why do you not have constructors? Because anything can be a type. An integer can be a new type. Like you can define a new type with pretty much in any way that you want. So you don't really have constructors because you don't have classes. And anything can be a type. And then everything can have also methods. But the truth is that without constructors, without a sort of a formal way of working, I think, with objects, People get lost and then, you know, they look down at people who come in from other languages who need these things. It is very difficult to define a type and allow anybody to make any changes. So you cannot really tell, how do you tell if it's corrupt or not? How do you write any kind of defensive code in that situation? We also have these, you know, best practice. I mean, I don't like the word best practices because I think that I usually use the word common practice to explain because it's not always best, right? There's a case for pretty much anything. But the common practices are everything is public. Anyone can do anything with the yeah, and if they don't read the documentation, tough. So it is a bit tricky for people coming into the language to know exactly what they're supposed to do and how. And in that sense, we're not making their lives easier. We're just making it harder instead of doing this gatekeeping. Oh, no, you come from Java. You probably don't know how to do Go. Never mind. <laughs> Forget about it. <laughs> this will take some time. And it doesn't matter. Like They could have 20 years of experience. <laughs> Still, <laughs> we'd look at them like, but do you know Go? Do you? 
So that's where I am. I am curious, though, if we're getting any remarks from our listeners. So maybe they have some opinions. Not just yet. Not just yet. Right. Maybe any minute now. Hopefully. One can only hope. <laughs> I'll be curious to hear what are some of the um, um, feedbacks that you got over the email. Like what, what are the... I don't know whether the pros or, or the people who agreed or disagreed. You said that they were all backing their claims, which is wonderful. It means you have generally a great discussion. Well, I mean, so there is... Expected practices. What was the term you used? Common practices. And that's great. So tell us about them. Well, the first comment that I got was, <laughs> that was really funny, was, aren't generics enough? OOP now? Really? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. So people do refer me a lot to the Go FAQs that specifically say that the answer to whether Go is object-oriented or not is yes and no. <laughs> and then... No, actually, it's is it a yes and no? Or I don't remember. I actually prepared it for you. Let me read this out. Oh, amazing. <laughs> yes and no. Although Go has types and methods and allows an object-oriented style of programming, there is no type hierarchy. The concept of interface in Go provides a different approach that we believe is easy to use and in some ways more general. There are also ways to embed types in other types to provide something analogous but not identical to subclassic. Moreover, methods in Go are more general than C++ or in Java. They can be defined for any sort of data, even built-in types such as plain and boxed integers, and they're not restricted to sl uh, classes slash structs. Also, the lack of type hierarchy makes objects in Go feel much more lightweight than in languages like C++ or Java. Well, I kind of agree. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. but then, you know, I, I went into the rabbit hole because what I remembered, what I remembered, you know, from my university was my professor, Jeff Rosenschein, explaining <laughs> that object-oriented is about being able to send messages to objects. And I checked, played the origin of the idea, and it's it appears to be the case that that is what they were going for it wasn't so much about hierarchy hierarchy came in later mm -hmm. so if we go back to basics maybe go is fully object oriented and i think to answer that you probably need to know more than i do about uh, language design but i again like from practice i'm leaning towards yes and in the workshop <laughs> we do things very java-like exactly the kinds of things that you're not supposed to do, or it's not really that you're not supposed to do, but we really try to express the same types of ideas, but keeping loyal to, I guess, the go way of doing things still. So yeah, I mean, at the very least, it's going to be a lot of fun. I, think. <laughs> I try to at least add some value in that regard, like give people like a good taste of, you know, of how they can do things and how they can get creative. But I also think that, you know, there is a lot of room for people to decide within their teams, their own best practices, their own practices, what, how they want to do things. I do think there should be a, a discussion. I also think that it should be a little bit more lively than it is now, where I think the veterans sort of, you know, dictate how people are going to use the language. The users of the language that are coming in are the future. They are going to also decide for themselves how they want to do things, how they want to program. They should have a space to do that. And if they're coming from other languages and they work in a similar way, that's fine. 
You asked me about quotes that I got. Somebody quoted Rob Pike to me. I tried, I couldn't find a quote, but somebody quoted Rob Pike to me. So apparently Rob Pike did say something about object-oriented, look like uh, this, <laughs> I guess, uh, object-oriented mm-hmm. or something of the sort. But yeah, I, I didn't get to the source. What I do see is a lot of people, you know, sort of, this is where I think this is coming from. How people write APIs, how people write their handlers, it's all pretty much functional programming. The way that this is designed, most people don't actually use an interface in these situations. And even if they do, they kind of don't use object. They use the functions as an interface, which you can do. You can infer. So they're not used to actually working with objects or not objects. Objects is not like, let's say structs. Let's just use the word structs with fields and actual, you know, the classic sort of way of doing things. And I think this has got, I think that's where it's coming from because we came a language that was so strong in that space. And in that space, you really don't need, you know, a lot of running objects and whatever objects you have are probably going to die soon anyways. And if we think also like those APIs, you know, it sounds funny, but I mean, objects don't live long in APIs unless they are, they live the entire lifetime of the application. And like the server, for instance, that could be a, an object. Their structs are limited to fields like configurations, uh, and they don't have many methods, right? But then if you look, for instance, at how they set up their repositories or how they set up their models, how they set up these things, because we didn't have generics up until very recently, they don't really use objects for that, or they generate a lot of code, but they don't actually know what's in it or care so much about it just to save, store, whatever. But with generics, you can actually store any kind of model into any kind of database or repository. So we are that much stronger in that, in that sense. Now, maybe that's going to, maybe now the people are actually going to write code for themselves. They're actually going to spend more time thinking about what they want to express and how, hopefully. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Find your most perplexing application issues. Honeycomb is a fast analysis tool that reveals the truth about every aspect of your application in production. Find out how users experience your code in complex and unpredictable environments. Find patterns and outliers across billions of rows of data and definitively solve your problems. And we use Honeycomb here at Changelove. That's why we welcome the opportunity to add them as one of our infrastructure partners. In particular, we use Honeycomb to track down CDN issues recently, which we talked about at length on the Kaizen edition of the Ship It podcast. So check that out. Here's the thing. Teams who don't use Honeycomb are forced to find the needle in the haystack. They scroll through endless dashboards playing whack-a-mole. They deal with alert floods, trying to guess which one matters. And they go from tool to tool to tool playing sleuth, trying to figure out how all the puzzle pieces fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that are slowly killing teams' effectiveness and ultimately hindering their business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. With Honeycomb, you guess less and you know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog.
Going through that, like what you just said, made me think maybe my idea of what OOP is is pretty heavily influenced and biased by writing Go. Like I haven't written anything but Go in a long time, right? So like probably two or three years at this point. So going through that, you're right. Like I think a lot of the like OOP stuff that was taught in school, I don't use anymore. But I still think of what I'm doing as object oriented, and maybe I'm wrong. Like like in my mind object oriented is just like encapsulating a set of data and having methods on it that is like self-contained, right? And maybe that's not what it actually is. Maybe I'm totally misunderstanding the concept. So that's interesting. You said it. You actually said it. <laughs> said encapsulation. So it's about encapsulation, abstraction, and uh, later came in generalization. So to encapsulate, you don't need hierarchy. Or, I mean, you can have a composition, essentially, and that would work pretty well, too, to encapsulate. But essentially, like, you don't even need to have any kind of composition, I think, to be able to encapsulate information. It, would, it is useful, but the combination of uh, information can be, you know, across a lot of things. We know this because we have distributed systems. I feel like we, we live in a world where everything is distributed, like all of our data is, like, everywhere. And we kind of need to aggregate it. So even a composition is sort of a nice to have, something that we're very used to and we do, but we don't actually need to have it. So if we have encapsulation, which I think we do in Go, and we are able to define abstractions, which we have interfaces for. And by the way, there is a case. So it's kind of interesting as I found a code snippet that was exactly what I needed for this workshop. At the time, it was the C++ code. I really loved because it starts with a license that do whatever the hell you want with this code as long as you don't blame me. <laughs> and <laughs> then this code that it's an event that you can register listeners to regardless of the type. So essentially, uh, it works with templates or generics. So that code uses generics for a case that we don't need. When we write this code in uh, in C++, we have to have we have to use this kind of code with templates to plugging something into something else to even be able to do that to just plugging some functionality into something else that it's not aware of again because interfaces well C++ doesn't have interfaces it has classes but you can define functions as pure virtual so it doesn't have to have all the implementation. But whatever object you have, you cannot pass in as another unless it implements, it It extends or is essentially a class. But in this case, you define your own event uh, handler. Obviously, nobody knows, no, you can't really pass in or use in this code any class that you didn't write yourself. So you get stuck. And this is why you use generics. In many, many languages, it's for this case. And that was why for many, many years, people would say, well, why do you need interfaces? Why do you need generics when you have interfaces? But the truth is that you do need generics for the cases where the behavior of the class is derived by the type. So for instance, uh, next node in a linked list. So the next is going to return the same type of node. And if your node is holding an integer or a float or whatever type of value, it's going to be different. 
a repository that stores any kind of model, a map with a key uh, value. By the way, <laughs> Go always had generics. Actually, that would be my uh, unpopular opinion. Go always had generics because map is a generic type. It maps from a key uh, uh, that is a generic type to a, a value that is a generic type. I see you're sipping your drink, Ian, so I know that you disagree. <laughs> no, I 100% agree. Oh, you do? Okay. <laughs> the slices that were always generic, we could just couldn't define our own. So it was like good for the 80% of the use cases, but then that we had our own cases that we needed it and we just didn't have anything. So you will talk now and I will sip a drink. <laughs> no, I definitely agree with you that the, the maps and the slices were are generic. They literally since day one. And like you said, it is like that 80% use case, right? I don't know how to tie this back to OOP stuff now. No, because like <laughs> why I think it plays a role in this is because what people did in those cases is they would write function, like a lot of functional code, mm -hmm. procedural code, etc., and did not use necessarily uh, generic types. I think, you know, we've had a lot of workarounds. I think now we can eliminate them. I think that the, the language is very mature to be object-oriented. No, that makes sense to me. Natalie. No, one thing is on Zoom call, another thing it's on a podcast. It's a whole new level. I found the quote from Rob Pike about uh, Go being yes or no object-oriented. So it's a bit of a thread. So it starts with whenever someone from Java or C++ or C Sharp, looking at Girona, comes to Go, they look for class, find struct, and stop looking. But this misses two fundamental differences between Go and traditional object-oriented languages. The first one is that it's not only structs. Any concrete type can have methods, integers, bools, slices, even funks. But the more important idea is the separation of concepts, data, and behavior are two distinct concepts of Go, not completed into a single notion of class. This is the insight which goes all the way back to Smalltalk, on which the object-oriented type system, including the interface model, is built. So stopping at struct equals equals class misses much of what makes Go work. So what are your thoughts? I agree. It sort of works very well with everything that I learned recently about this. Honestly, it feels like Go is more naturally object-oriented than languages that I worked with before. I had this discussion with my boyfriend because of the workshop and the amount of resistance that I was getting. Does he think Go is uh, object-oriented? Yes. So his answer was, of course it is. <laughs> It wasn't even a question in his mind. And then he told me, well, you know how the JavaScript people say that a prototype is the best way to define object-oriented. And my takeaway from this is that every night I go to sleep next to a man who quotes the JavaScript people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> I thought it was a pretty cool observation, to be honest, but still <laughs> concerning. I'll keep you posted. <laughs> <laughs> quote there where it says it separates the idea of data and behavior. I think that's like the important part of that area, but I'm having a hard time articulating exactly why in my head. You think that that is a good way to express object-oriented, like yeah, I do. extracting away the data, the data from the functionality? Yeah, I think going to what you're saying, where Go is almost a more pure version of object orientation, I think that's what leads to it, right? The idea that 
I don't know. I'd have to really sit down and think about it, but that's where my mind is going. I think that I found something that that the person that was that wrote me about go not being object oriented language might be related to. So I searched for Rob Pike and object oriented, and I found Wikipedia. <laughs> and on Wikipedia, he is criticizing object oriented. So it's possible that that was what that quote was about. If you want to read this out and uh, share this later in our show notes, everybody can go back to this too. Yeah, I think it's funny. <laughs> I mean, clearly, yes, I will send it to you and uh, we can include that. So he criticized object-oriented for being incredibly heavy, I guess. And that sort of works pretty well with those quotes about objects being lightweight and go. I think I agree. I think it feels very, very natural. By the way, something that I really love is uh, we don't have enumerators, but we do have, like, it's very easy for me to, when I look at pseudocode with those red-black trees and, you know, um, coloring nodes in a graph and stuff like that, this is kind of stuff that I teach to people who don't have the, uh, let's say, the classical background in the university. And I teach that stuff to, uh, to people because they need to pass interviews. So <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> this, is, this is where this is coming from. But what I really like to do, because I, I don't, I can't code those. Uh, so I take pseudocode with white, black, gray, whatever, red colors. I define a color that is, that I don't define a new type by alias integers to do that, and I get very, very expressive, and basically write pseudocode and go. And I don't think that you could do that with a non-object-oriented language. I, I can pretty much express any pseudocode that I see without actually giving much thought to what is written there. I just essentially copy and paste it and make the code work. Like I just make the types work and the functions work, and if the function happens to be a method, that's what's going to be. And if the function happens to be a procedural function, that's what it's going to be. And just, you know, make it work, whatever is uh, necessary. I don't think I would have been able to do that if Go was not object-oriented. Also, you should not be testing people in red-black trees. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely could not code up a red-black tree, right? Like, without Googling something right now. Yeah, obviously. No, I still, I do these exercises with people so they get used to the idea. And then if they can do this, they can do anything, stuff like that, essentially. But yeah, there are way too many edge cases in the red black tree. <laughs> it's not okay. <laughs> Somebody should simplify this. Someone should write a library, generic library for it once and then never touch it again. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very good. So let's rant about people who uh, give impossible tests to... Uh, the complete beginners in coding. <laughs> or tell us how you do this right when you're hiring for your team. So I don't know that I do this right. Let's start with that. But I try to decide what I want. And then I don't test people on stuff that I don't want. So what I will do, for instance, like if I care, if I want to know how thorough somebody is going to be, that I will dive with them on something that they do know and check how familiar they are with all the details. So if somebody tells me, I don't know, let's start with the very basics. If somebody tells me that they uh, have worked with my SQL, then I will 
test them heavily on MySQL until I reach something that, you know, either they don't know or to get a sense of how far into the rabbit hole they went. Or any topic, any other topic. This one is kind of normal, but it all depends on the profile. It really all depends on the profile. So we said earlier that I am the sum of the opportunities that were given to me. And I don't think I'm a bad developer. We all want to hire somebody who cannot do what we can't do. <laughs> Essentially, like I feel like we are raising the bar constantly to a level that people cannot actually meet, not because they're not good enough. So for instance, if I can't do something and I am going to search for somebody who is going to, to be able to do it, that's a, a little bit unfair. And I feel like we're doing this all the time. We're sort of like raising the bar, raising the bar, raising the bar to essentially, I think, maybe make up for our own disadvantages. So I try to not be unreasonable. When I interview somebody, I do think about, I do try to see if they can learn during the, the interview process, for instance. So I will present them with something that they will have to think about sort of internalize and then spit out some information that could be wrong, could be right. But, you know, it could be very small things that tell me if they get it. For instance, I work with billing. People are not necessarily familiar with those concepts. So I will introduce something that, that has something to do with what we do in the domain. And it's fine that they don't know this. And then I will ask them, so how, how would you do it? Like, given those constraints, what would you do? So I taught them something. And now I can see how they actually learn and what they actually do with this information. And it's not really just problem solving. It's more of try not to introduce them to problems that they already know, essentially. So it could be very, very small things. Yeah, so I am the sum of the opportunities that were given to me. And I am a huge believer that if you give people an opportunity, they're not going to let you down, especially if they've been begging for work since forever. And I do think that you can bank on people's loyalty in those cases. I think for a lot of people, just having the foot in the door is such a big deal for them that they will pay spades. So I do see a lot of value in these people. And even now, if I go for a job interview, I am never going to apply for something that I already know. Like I want to grow just as much as everyone else. So I'm always going to go and try to convince somebody that they need to invest in my potential. I am very, very um, similar to a complete beginner. Because we all have to, you know, go around and essentially convince people to give us a chance to prove that we can do something that we have not shown before that we can do. It's so obvious to people that, okay, one after 20 years is going to be able to do this. But it shouldn't be, right? I mean, at the end of the day, <laughs> it really shouldn't be. I fail just as much as everyone else. So that's why I go with It's a very long answer to your question, Ellie. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Acuity, a new platform that brings fully managed Argo CD and enterprise services to the cloud or on-premise. And I'm here with two of the co-founders from Acuity, Jesse Suen and Alexander Matusenchev. 
So the Acuity platform is in beta right now. You guys have some big ideas you're executing on around Argo CD, managed Argo CD, Kubernetes native application delivery, and the power of GitOps. Help me understand the what and the why of what you're doing right now. So we started Acuity because we saw what was happening in the Kubernetes community, the challenges that people were facing about developer experience. And having run Argo CD for Intuit for a couple of years, we knew it took like a small team to build this and scale it and provide a performant solution for the developers. And so at Acuity and the Acuity platform, what we're trying to do is, the first thing we're trying to do is actually provide Argo CD as a fully managed solution to our users. But that is just actually the start of things. And we actually want to take the next steps on improving the whole GitOps and developer experience and providing new tools and ecosystems around Argo and Argo project. Yeah, that's right, JC. So Argo CD is just the beginning, but every company eventually needs way more tools integrated into the DevOps platform. And that's what we're hoping to deliver with Acuity platform. So we're hoping to provide a great user interface that enable developers to achieve what they need in a matter of just a few clicks. But we also want to make Argo CD enterprise ready. What that means is our customers would get audit and insightful analytics out of the box without configuring anything. That's what we did at Intuit and we learned that it was not so easy to do. And that's what we're hoping to solve for multiple organizations. Very cool. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Alex. Again, listeners, this is a closed beta. Check it out. Acuity.io slash changelog. Head there and see what this platform is all about. Again, acuity.io slash changelog. Links are in the show notes. And by our friends at LaunchDarkly, fundamentally change how you deliver software innovate faster, deploy fearlessly, and take control of your software so you can ship value to customers faster and get feedback sooner. LaunchDarkly is built for developers but empowers the entire organization. Get started for free and get a demo at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com. You mentioned briefly about your background, starting with C++ and also on a little bit on how did you come to the idea of doing this workshop. If you want to elaborate a little bit on kind of giving the context of uh, what brought you <laughs> on the shorter term and on the longer term to this idea. I don't know. There was this uh, jobs fair in April where I sat down with the organizer of GrafoCon Europe and I asked her point blank. So... Why have you never asked me <laughs> to uh, do a workshop? <laughs> you know, I do this. <laughs> and then she told me, well, it's a lot of work. And I said, well, yeah, but, I mean, it's, it's something that I do. <laughs> but the topic itself is really something that I did want to teach my team. My team works mostly procedural code, right? Mostly procedural code with Go. Why? Why did you want to do it? How did you even come to think of it? Because that's what they do. And I actually don't think that those patterns that they're using serve my team very well. Or Actually, it's it's not really my team. It's my former team because since about a month ago, we reorganized. We use the middleware patterns in a way that was not really working well for us. I mean, I'm not saying that there is no way to make it not work. There is no way to make it work, but the way that we did this was not really working well for us. And 
I was trying to show the team like, different approaches to, to maybe, you know, redesign that really like a portion of the code that I felt would just be easier to understand with classic object-oriented because that is how we used to see the world. But we understand delegation. For instance, if I tell you, Natalie, to breathe in, you don't have to think about uh, operating your lungs. You just breathe in. And if I tell you to breathe deeply, then you will breathe deeply. And if I tell you to stop breathing, you will until you panic. <laughs> so Defer. Breathe out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you will defer some breath, hopefully. <laughs> Unless something is broken. <laughs> I do feel that when the code gets too complex and you don't understand it anymore, that you really, really need to start thinking in terms of objects. It makes things so much easier. People do understand those concepts very well because they mimic the way that we think, the way that we work, the way the world works. So that's where it came from. It came from a real problem in, in our code base. And then kind of realized that if people don't agree that it's an object-oriented language, then one, I want them to see why I think it is and at least give them the option. And also, I feel like we failed them in some way. If, they, if people work with Go and they don't see it and they, they don't see the benefits at all and they don't think it even exists, or it's a massive part of the language that they're not utilizing. Go is very simple, like in the sense that, for instance, like if we compare it to my first language, it's not really my first language. Let's say my somewhat first language. My first language is Pascal, but I mean, if you point a gun to my head, I won't be able to. Same here. Yeah, we're the products of the same uh, education system. Well, some people had, was it Java? Oh, really? Which is not really the uncle of of uh, Go, unlike Pascal, which is? Yeah, that's true. That's actually true. Although I did start with Dr. Scheme to be very, very accurate. Well, I mean, the only reason that I know that is because of Carmen Ando, who went around telling everybody that uh, Go is like a child of the branches of Pascal. Yeah. And then I learned also that Ruby is also somewhat a child of Pascal, which explains why I like Ruby. Although I don't remember Pascal at all, and I can't really tell like their similarities or not. I, I have no idea. <laughs> Try to take it with a piece of paper. Maybe it will refresh your memory more than with a screen. <laughs> That's how it was for me, at least, writing Pascal code. Not sure I ever actually executed any. Did you get to write it? I don't remember. <laughs> for better and worse, <laughs> education system. <laughs> it's the whiteboard of the early times. Anyway, yes, it's an uncle of Ruby. I did not know that. Yeah, things that you uh, you learn when you go to conferences. Uh, <laughs> random, <laughs> random bits of information <laughs> of trivia that could be useful in the future or not. So back to C++, it has a million features that you're never going to use. JavaScript as well, nobody uses Let's say what it is. It's not a common practice. In that case, it's the best practice not to utilize all the features in those languages because that, <laughs> that is not maintainable code. So that in Go, Go has been written in a way that should allow us to utilize all the features. So the idea that people don't do it is, well, it's just sad. I don't know what to think, what to say else about it. What are some good or bad use cases for using that? Like you mentioned, billing is your close to home example. Do you have some uh, other use cases you would say definitely use it or definitely don't? 
So the quote that, uh, that Rob Pike, that I think whatever, whomever sent me uh, the message was basing it on, he said that, I don't know, there were multiple, uh, a professor used multiple classes to perform something that was a simple lookup. And I think this is it. And I also understand like why it happened. But again, but it's not go actually. So again, when we go back to, uh, uh, to Java, you are not able to, to say that A is B unless A is aware of B and knows that it implements B. So you can't really say that A is B. And then in those languages, you really have to work extra hard to express the idea that A is B. And that could create those, you know, those intermediate layers between code that is just a proxy, which just invokes more code and invokes more code. And then at the end of the day, if you want to perform a, a simple lookup, it can look like uh, something that will create this very chaotic code base for something very, very simple. But then in Go, I always say that everything is explicit in Go except for the things that aren't. And what I mean by the things that aren't are like stringers, for instance, or where we invoke some functionality by performing some type assertion that uh, nobody's aware of somewhere. But yeah, but generally speaking, Go is explicit. If you have a package and it's well-written, then it should meet the open-close principles. And then you should be able to wrap this type with whatever, you know, or extend the functionality of whatever it is that you want. I understand why people struggle with that. I think that is the biggest, the biggest issue is like how we don't write packages very well. By the way, for the workshop, I had to revise my code multiple times because I realized that my design choices were subpar, let's say. Less common practices. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, for instance, it's really funny. So I actually wanted to show that the code was extendable. So by actually creating an extra package that will use that package. And then I realized that, no, that package should take in an interface, for instance. Like, I mean, you should extend, but through an interface, not direct. And as I was doing that, the reason that I, I realized it was because I had a third package that actually did need, need that interface. And it needed that interface to be in the in-between layer. And then I started thinking, so how do I make, like, if I wanted to teach somebody that, how would I actually do it? And I'm still struggling with, like, figuring out, like, what is the exact problem with that code that I could tell somebody, like, if you see this, then that is your problem. And that's what you need to change. But it's really funny because I was actually writing something to show that it's going to be extendable. And then it wasn't. And then at some point, like, I hit, uh, I hit an end. So obviously, you know, I, I fixed it. But generally, it's a different type of language. So a package doesn't have to expose the interfaces that, like an interface. Like if you write code in Java, if you write code in C++, you don't want to express it as B. But at the time that you write the package or you write the class or you write anything, you have to know how the user is going to use it. You have to know. And then you have to extend or implement or, you know, do something so that a user who is using your package is going to be able to plug in your A as B, your A as I, your A as whatever. So you have to think about how people are going to use your class. And then in Go, you don't have to do it, but then you can write very easily a usable package. 
or unextendable package. So how to write it well, by the way, is something that I'm still, I still don't know that we are very good at, at teaching. I'm trying to sort of figure that out as well as I go. Now, how do I define that, that a package is good? And I love that when people explain the open close, they always talk about uh, CURL or curl or whatever the command. Nobody's going to rewrite curl. It doesn't require redesigning. Why? Why is it so good? What makes it so good? And what makes a good package? It's a very, very difficult question. Regardless, by the way, if the type, if you have object-oriented or not, like even if it's just, you know, a bunch of functions, it is very difficult to define when you're done, to know exactly when you're done. One last question before we switch to the fun and popular opinion, which we were missing so much throughout this entire episode. You've been kind of giving sprinkles of information on the workshop. And so other than this as being an object-oriented programming in Go, what else can you tell us about it? Well, I can tell you that I will take the learners through a maze of <laughs> object-oriented. And when I say a maze, <laughs> I mean quite literally. <laughs> we are going to navigate through a maze. I mentioned Jeff Rosenstein earlier, who was uh, my professor to intro to CS. And our first exercise way back when, in 2003, that's what I'm taking people through. So it's heavily inspired by his work. So credit to him. <laughs> I thought it was a very good way of exploring object-oriented. And I like to take people through journeys that I found very good for myself. Like if I had a hum moment, I try to share it with other people as well. And Natalie, you know this. Ian, actually, I can ask you, what is your aha moment in your career? Like situations where you said, wow. And now I get it. Now I know. That's a real uh, on-the-spot question. I know. It's a difficult one. <laughs> when did you realize that you can do this? You can code. You know what to do. You, you've got this. I mean, I, that moment was, uh, you know, so I was in school and I went to interview for an internship, you know, and going, doing that interview and they did like the whole whiteboard thing, you know, it was eight hours of interviews. Leaving that was that like aha moment was like, I felt good at the end of that. And that made me feel... Like I was like, oh yeah, I can do this. I can do this, you know. So for you. But before that, I had no confidence. <laughs> That's the thing. So for you, it was trial by fire. Exactly, yeah. That's very interesting. I think for a lot of people, it is just like succeeding in something that they didn't think they could before. I didn't think I was ready for like that kind of set of interviews, you know. Yeah. But uh, that's a reason why I tell people just, you see a lot of those posts where it's like, Oh, you know, I'm trying to get do these things before I apply for jobs and interview. And my advice is always just like, just go interview. Like, if you do poorly, like you've learned something, and you can go do the next one a little bit better. Like, don't wait, just go. I think Natalie, the next time we need to bring somebody who doesn't agree with us, because we are all so on the same page, it's a problem. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, we'll pull some from your emails. <laughs> a thought that came to mind that uh, throughout this episode, um, see if I can make this into a sort of an unpopular opinion. Probably not, so I'm not going to make the tune just yet. But thinking of uh, AI-generated tools, they get inspired from existing code, right? And we can have this conversation if there's features of Go, uh, of uh, OOB in Go or not. But if there's not a lot of examples out there, the different models that generate code 
will not be creating this a lot. So assuming that the trend of code is not just human writing it, but more like human guiding it, it means that it will, at least the way I see it, it means that a lot of the code or the languages will kind of fall deeper into their template or into their like niche or a little box rather than spreading out of it like you did. So this can be a fun thing to think about as a, I don't know, as a person who's researching AI and code. Wow, I love it. So, you know, a few, few days ago, I had that thought, AI is not going to write code or OP maybe because they don't really understand the world like we do. They don't have that restriction. You know, a bot doesn't tell a person to breathe. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They don't need to. They can go as deeply into the uh, mechanics of how to breathe so that their understanding is going to be very different of those models. Yeah. Maybe there will be some way of doing this guided and then it, uh, we're saved from those boxes. Exactly. So that is very interesting is what what you have there because, you know, like something that I said earlier about how, how do you know that a package is complete? Maybe a bot can do that for you. A static analysis or dynamic. Maybe a bot can analyze if something is open closed. Uh, yeah, that definitely is a fun conversation to have. And if anybody wants to chat about this, we are on the Go Time Slack channel and the Go for Slack. So reach out and maybe this will be our some future episode. But until then, let's do the tune for the unpopular opinion. I actually think you should probably leave. And now it's time for the unpopular opinion. Rona, what do you have for us? I mean, I felt like the entire uh, show was about, <laughs> I have an arsenal of, you know, <laughs> of things that I need to convince people about. So I feel that we're going to be much stronger if we collected opinions about Go from people who are not professional gophers. And instead of teaching them learn from them a little bit. I do see other languages evolve, you know, in many different directions. I think people understand today how to work with languages in a very different way than what we used to do. The evolution of best practices, all of those things, it's just, it's tremendous. And also I think that Go added a lot of value to other languages just by existing, just because, you know, Go introduced these features that we discussed. I think we influenced the industry, but I think that we should be open also to be influenced back. So your unpopular opinion is that we go should be open to be influenced by non-gophers. Yes. All right, let's see how that poll works. This will be a poll and then let's see if that uh, brings you further into the, the Hall of Fame of the Unpopular Opinions. Well, I mean, Matt said after he put me in the Hall of Fame, he then said that it doesn't exist everywhere. I think so that the other um, other people with unpopular opinions are not jealous. <laughs> but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> I won that uh, title fair and square, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, let's see, let's see. I mean, it might not be as unorthodox as the, uh, the old one. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, that was fun and interesting. And uh, I hope 
this will bring to the workshop that will generate enough code that will train the AI to do some oopy go. <laughs> thanks, Rana. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, everyone who joined. Thank you. What do you think about Go and OOP? Let us know in the comments, links to the discussion in the show notes. I also want to share with you an awesome conversation we had on the changelog recently. Ken Conser wrote up 16 lessons he learned doing security audits for tech startups, and we sat down with him for a thorough discussion of his findings. Here's one moment from that episode where Ken shares some pro tips for pen testing teams. And honestly, uh, we would also ask the devs, we would say like, what keeps you up? At, like where in the code keeps you up at night? We wouldn't treat that as God's truth, but you know, developers have a surprisingly good sense, um, even without security knowledge of what parts of the code are scary and they're kind of worried about. Um, they definitely have blind spots. Mm -hmm. That's definitely true. But in terms of like, we were talking about business logic, a lot of times they'll be like, yeah, this part is super gnarly. Like there's a ton of logic here and it kind of works, but like it also breaks a decent amount and it's an important functionality for the app. So please check that out. Mm -hmm. So those two things really helped prioritize. That scary intuition reminds me of severance, honestly. It's like, well, I can easily spot the scary numbers here. Ooh. <laughs> Continue listening at changelog.fm slash 494. That's episode number 494. Thanks again to our partners at Fastly for having our CDN covered. To the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder for keeping our beat supply on swole. And to you for listening. We appreciate you. That is all for now. We'll talk to you again next time on GoTime.